So Ezra 4, I'm going to be reading the first six verses. Ezra 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Let's pray that prayer, we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I believe it was Ronald Reagan who once said that the closest thing to eternal life you'll see on this earth is a government program. <laughs> Fact checked, true. Uh, and that's how you know every temporary tax, for instance, will become permanent inevitably, right? And every agency will long outlive you. Uh, most government projects, even small ones, will take longer than it took the Egyptians to erect a pyramid. I'll give you an example. Uh, we moved to Allentown in 2019, early that year, and when we got here, the Hamilton Street Bridge over Cedar Creek was under construction and apparently had been for years. Uh, and it wasn't until, like, what, last year that it fully reopened, I think? And, like, that creek is maybe, what, 10 feet wide? Like, we're not talking about the Mississippi here. <laughs> and yet, apparently, that's a, you know, this is long-term job security for somebody. Uh, I'm surprised they didn't add a toll booth while they were at it. But um, in any event, government-sanctioned projects often take a long time, and, and the temple in Ezra's day was no exception, as we see in today's story. Uh, if last week was about small beginnings, uh, this chapter is about very small progress, as in almost no progress. Uh, last week, we, we talked about how our feelings aren't of primary importance in worship. Meaning your emotions, whatever they are, should not keep you from worshiping. You don't have to feel it the same way that your neighbor feels it. Uh, you can come to worship sad, you can come joyful, you can come angry, scared, and God will receive your worship. That's not to say that worship needs to be free of emotion. Quite to the contrary, I think that that passage was an endorsement. I think you should go ahead and feel your feelings. Worship should be an emotional experience. If your emotions are filed away on Sunday morning, that's not a good thing. I would say that in spite of being good Presbyterians, we are not supposed to be the frozen chosen. Cold formality is not what is modeled, certainly not in Old Testament worship. We should bring our feelings before the Lord, lay them at his altar. So we saw a lot of emotion last week when the temple foundation was laid. Some were exuberant, others were overwhelmed with sorrow, <clears throat> and that was okay. But now that the foundation was laid and the lumber has arrived, you would think that things would finally get a move on. Uh, you would hope that this next chapter would be filled with progress reports, right? 
they, they could finish the walls in section one and then the roof and they could install plumbing and HVAC and all that stuff, right? And by the end of the chapter, you would think they'd be picking out curtains. But then again, this is technically a Persian government program, isn't it? Remember, on paper, this is not even officially a, a, a Jewish project. It's a Persian project, a government policy of the empire. Uh, and they say Rome wasn't built in a day. The temple is also not going to be built in a day. We have to expect some delays. And look, the Jews don't have endless resources in this game either. They have, they have some strikes against them on this project anyway. They can't just print money like the U.S. Treasury. Uh, and that's why they're recycling the old stones, right? And I, I kind of picture this thing looking a little bit like a Dr. Seuss-style building, you know, it's like the kind that doesn't really look like it should be possible, that kind of thing, you know, tiny bricks piled up precariously. I'm sure it was better than that, but maybe not by much. And, and meanwhile, if they find out they're short on parts and lumber, right, that's another long delay because everything they're getting is coming from, from Lebanon, right? So that's a problem as well. Uh, they have to wait for the Amazon delivery. And, and so aside from all that, I observed last week that they intentionally have crippled themselves because they started the worship services back up. And, and let's be honest, that's a distraction. That means that along with the building project, they have the regular daily effort of securing the fuel and the bulls for the sacrifices and running the service in, in and of itself. The same guys who are in charge of supervising the work also run the service. Many of the same priests, right? And so that's That's complicated. When, you're, when your foremen are all busy all the time. Uh, in other words, a significant portion of the day would need to be spent doing daily chores. And before you can even think of getting to the extra projects, the other stuff on the list, you have to take care of those things. And it, it would have been more efficient, one would think, to hit pause on all the worship stuff. That would be seemingly practical. Get the building done and then start back up again because it's hard to do that extra stuff when the daily chores are taking up so much effort. Some of you could say amen to that. I used to work with a guy at my deli job back in the day, um, and he hated cleaning slicers. Everybody hated cleaning the slicers except for me. Uh, I got to be kind of good at it, and I was very thorough. But the one day my, my buddy says to me, why do we bother cleaning these things? They're just going to get dirty again anyway. And my kids would be like, yo, dude, same. That's exactly how we feel about things. And that's why my house looks the way it does. Georgia tells them, like, you know, clean a room. And they're like, why? Who's coming over? And she's like, us. Us is coming over. We live here, if you can recall, you know. But the daily chores suck up a lot of time, don't they? Like, if you could skip the cooking and the, and the doing the dishes and the feeding and the cleaning up after the dogs and wiping the tables and cleaning the kitchen and the bathrooms and taking out the trash and doing your homework, like, if you could drop all of that, you could get so many other things done. I mean, heck, in my house, we already skip half the things on that list, and we still can't get the extra things done. <laughs> but the Jews have decided, rightly, that worship is too important to wait, and so they continue with the daily sacrifices. This is a daily chore they're willing to commit to. And if it means that the work of building the temple is going to take an even longer time, they're okay with that. So, but they're facing a lot of like uphill battles, right? They're facing government inefficiency, lack of resources, daily worship chores. Like they got a lot of things working against them here. But on top of that, chapter four wants us to know that the Jews also have enemies. People who actively undermine this project. People who do not want God's mission to succeed. Back in chapter three, we had read briefly that they had some fears about the locals. 
And now that gets fleshed out a little more fully. Uh, look again here at what Ezra records. It says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. All right, I'm going to pause right there for a second because Ezra cheats a little bit, doesn't he? He gives away the plot in verse 1. He announces up front that these people are adversaries to Judah and Benjamin. I call that cheating because their offer in verse 2 seems to contradict such an interpretation, right? Ezra is sort of breaking the storyteller's rule of letting the plot unfold in a natural way. He doesn't let us discover with surprise that these are enemies, right? Like, there's no plot twist. He just calls them out at the start. Like, he might as well, like, paint a snidely whiplash, like, you know, mustache on these guys, right? He's telling the story to us like we're children. My, my kids are very fond of the Bill and Pete books by Tommy DePaola, and part of what's funny about it is, like, the bad guy is named the bad guy. That's his only name. And, and like, similarly, like, we really like uh, our, our favorite, more recent Muppet movie was uh, Muppets Most Wanted. And, and one of the main, the main, the secondary villain, I should say, is played by Ricky Gervais, and he introduces himself to the Muppets. He hands them a business card, and his name is Dominic Bad Guy which he explains is pronounced Bodji and that it's French and that it actually means good man. And of course, these idiots accept it and Rolf is like, I like him, he's humble and honest, you know. But Ezra basically calls these people out as villains as soon as they walk on the stage, like almost like he's inviting us to boo, you know. And then the bad guys walked in, boo, not today, Satan, you know, like, like that's what he's looking for. But for bad guys... Their villainy is not the first thing you notice, is it? In fact, what, they, what do they do? They, they offer to be helpful. Let us build with you. Now, doesn't that sound nice? Like, if your number one problem right now is that you can't seem to get something done, and someone offers to help you, what possible reason could you have for saying, no thanks, I got this? I mean... We do this all the time, but usually it's a pride thing, isn't it? Like, you know, if a guy's carrying a load and it's more than he really should be carrying and it's like, hey, you want a hand? No, I got it. No man wants to admit that he can't handle this thing, right? That's pride. It's also possible you would reject help because it wouldn't actually be that helpful. Uh, maybe the person offering to help has zero skills to offer you any help with what you're doing. You know, for instance, like when your kids offer to help with like you know, when they're young, like anything. Um, what you're calling help might just make things harder, right? And this is, for instance, this is why I still I don't help with the laundry at home, right? I would mess up the system. It's not that I don't know how a machine works, but I don't want to mess with the system. And it's why I would never, like, offer Georgia help in her sewing room, right? Like, the best thing I can do to help is get away, um, so an offer of help could be rejected because of pride, or it could be the incompetence of the one offering. An offer of help could be rejected for lots of reasons, and, and we weren't there, so it's hard to get a complete read right up front, but all we really have to go on is what Ezra tells us, and that's that these were bad guys. These were adversaries, enemies. It's not their skill set, and it's not that we couldn't use the help. Rather, Ezra assigns sinister motives up front. These guys are not our friends. 
Something about this offer of help is actually the exact opposite. It's insincere. They have ulterior motives, and maybe even the way they worded it sounded a little bit sinister or sarcastic. We don't know. But either way, there's a trust issue here. And maybe Ezra's not so much treating us like children. Maybe it's more like the Columbo method of storytelling, right? Like that the murder always happens up front in Columbo. Like there's no mystery, actually. You're just watching. You're not going to learn who the bad guy is. You're just going to see the bad guy get exposed. And that's kind of what happens here. These guys offer to help. They are rudely turned away. And then you watch as they are exposed for what they really are. But just pause a second. Who are these guys? And how did Zerubbabel know that they couldn't be trusted? Well, they introduce themselves. They say, you know, let us build with you. We worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhad and king of Assyria who brought us here. What does that tell us? We learn right up front that these people are not natives. Uh, They were exiled here from somewhere else. You see, the Assyrians and the Babylonians had a similar program. You conquer a territory and then you move the people around. Uh, and if you scramble the egg, they won't be able to unite against you. So, so Babylon had exiled the leaders of Judah. Uh, before that, Assyria had exiled the northern kingdom of Israel. But Assyria went one extra step and moved other people into Israel. So these people, we have no idea who they are or where exactly they come, came from. They're, they're, they're not from Israel or Judah. Uh, eventually, they interbred with everything else. These become the forefathers of the Samaritans that we read about so much in the New Testament. But they claim that they've been worshiping Yahweh since they got here. Now, something about that just doesn't smell right, because how can you possibly be worshiping Yahweh correctly, considering that the original inhabitants, the true worshipers, had been so lousy about it that that's why God let them get exiled, and they're not here anymore. So no one's left to have taught you the proper way to worship the true God. So at most... They can only follow Yahweh as a sort of like rumored local pet deity from the old days. I think these people follow Yahweh the same way some Americans claim to follow like Native American tribal religions. Like they don't know anything about it really, but they like dream catchers and they hang them around their house, like that kind of thing. They're not true believers. These are, these are syncretists. These are pagans who made a little extra room on the shelf for an extra idol honoring this Yahweh character that used to be here. And so Zerubbabel and Jeshua don't trust them. And they rudely dismiss them in verse 3. Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. I kind of find the, the wording of that retort fascinating. Uh, They're not subtle, are they? They're very careful to draw a clear line between us and them. Uh, You're not really one of us. In fact, you have nothing to do with us. We're building a house for our God. In other words, not yours. It comes across as kind of rude. But they justify this response a couple of ways. They basically say this is God's business, and it's also King Cyrus's business. They cite both authorities, and they are submitting to both authorities in their proper turn. They say, we are building to the Lord, but we're doing it as Cyrus commanded us. And I find that interesting because they don't just pick one or the other. They don't say, hey, look, this is our God thing. That's all you need to know. 
Uh, no, they also cite the command of Cyrus. Like, look, we're doing this as the king commanded. He gave us authority to do this. We're building unto the Lord first and at the king's command second. And I think it's an interesting study on what it looks like to submit to God and the state, which is a common question in every historical period, including our own. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, I think they say exactly what the New Testament teaches. Both things are true. We are submitting to the king, but ultimately we do so as unto the Lord and for his sake. That's a tricky line sometimes, but I think they have the right idea here. But still, why you got to be so rude? Don't you know they're human too? I hate that song, by the way. I'm sorry. That was stupid. How are you going to come and ask for my daughter's hand and then ignore my answer? Why would you even ask if you didn't want an answer? I'll be more than rude at that point. I've got a 12-gauge for nothing, you know. But in a similar vein, this offer of help here is, is about as genuine as the proposal in that song. They're not on the same page, and I don't think they ever intended to help, and that gets borne out. Or if they did intend to help, they had very different motives. Their reasons for wanting to help have less to do with worshiping God than having an ownership stake. They wanted a piece of Yahweh. It's kind of like the moral of the little red hen that's baking the bread, right? Like, if I put in the work, I'll be entitled to a piece of the pie. We get a say in what happens after that. It's a control thing. They want to have God, but they want to have him on their terms. If he's going to be moving into the neighborhood, we want a piece of this action. If we get involved, we can control him. And is that really so different from how people think about God today? I think a lot of people claim to be Christians but are no more true believers than these guys. These are people who identify as Christians. People like that tend to think of God as a transactional God. Uh, You do a little something for him, and he owes you something. I be a good person, God owes me a solid. I was once at an event. I was wearing a clerical collar for said event, and someone I didn't know walks right up to me and says, I did a good deed today, Father. Like, if that wasn't reason enough for me to want to avoid wearing the collar in public, but this person had done some silly superstitious thing that was meant as a kindness, and it was a nice person, but they, they wanted credit for being good today. And worse, this person thought that I could help them get credit with the big guy, right? And that's how people think about God. Like, I'll scratch his back and he'll scratch mine. I can get a share in this glory by helping God out. But worship, true worship of the true God is not a publicly traded commodity. The Christian faith is not a cooperative enterprise. You don't get to buy some shares of God's stock. You're either in or out of the covenant. You can't buy your way in, nor can you work your way in. And the fact that these people are even offering to help God, in a sense, is a sign that they don't know him. And the leadership of Israel, they're rightly suspicious. I'll be honest, I've thought about this as it applies in the here and now. Like, this is part of why I've often been reluctant to get involved in various secular and sort of social efforts and things in this community. I've not been very good at going to the Neighborhood Association stuff. Uh, We haven't done that that fundraiser dinner over at the UCC in a few years. I haven't engaged in many of the political gatherings. And, like, I have no 
animosity toward those things, you know, look, I wasted four years on a poli-sci degree. Like, you know, I like civic engagement. But what do they have to do with us and our mission in the grand scheme of things? Our mission as the church of Jesus Christ is to worship God and to preach the gospel. And it's fine if we want to clean the streets and feed the homeless and host block parties. Like, we could do those things as we're able. Uh, we can participate in lots of good things, but ultimately, we're not on the same team as most of these people that would want to work with us. Like, unbelievers don't share our mission. There's a limit to how much cooperation can happen here. When I was in RUF at Penn State, uh, during my time there, they finished this huge. I forget what it's called now, the Spiritual Student Center or whatever the heck. I think it was paterno money. Um, and it was for all the religious groups, Christians, Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, Mormons, whatever. You can all use this building. And we were allowed to use the chapel and stuff. I'm thinking RUF probably still does. Uh, but I remember my campus minister telling us, like right after they opened this thing, he went to a meeting that he got invited to of all the various ministry leaders held at the center. And you know what they talked about? The recycling program. As in, what's the optimal location for the various recycling bins that we're going to put here in the building so we can get maximum participation in the recycling program? That was pointless. But what else could they talk about? They have nothing else in common. We didn't have the same mission. And that was the problem here. The Jews can't work with the Samaritans on the temple because the mission's not the same. The true faith doesn't have fellowship with outsiders. Like, we can do business and trade. We can live together. We can work together out in the fields. And hopefully in today's, I mean, we're trying to evangelize those people. Yeah, we want to interact with them. But when it comes to the actual faith and worship kingdom business, we have nothing in common. Our mission's not the same. So the Jews can't accept their help because, A, the offer is disingenuous, as we learn in a little bit. B, they're not authorized to help by King Cyrus's decree. And most importantly, because worship is not an ecumenical project, you have nothing to do with us. I've said before that we don't need a Christian king or president to, to function as the people of God. We can worship and serve God without the government's blessing, and we can and should honor the secular authorities. But worship itself is something only God's people can do. Our mission is unique. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua draw a line, and it soon becomes clear that they were rather correct to be suspicious. As we see beginning in verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Just to give you context here, because you know most of us can't name half the American presidents, let alone the various kings of the Persian Empire. Cyrus died in 530 BC. He was succeeded by Cambyses II. 
then some guy named Bardia took the throne for like a few months and then got killed and then came Darius in 522 BC and the work was still being held up. Ezra tells us in verse 6 that even under Xerxes, 40 years later, they were still antagonizing the exiles. And next week we're going to see, beginning in verse 7, that the attacks continued into the reign of his son, Artaxerxes. That's six administrations. Imagine starting a building project under George Bush Sr. and still seeing it like waiting on permits. This is a prolonged campaign of undermining the work of God. The temple is becoming like the bridge on Hamilton Street, but ten times worse. The timeline for this rebuild is becoming a nightmare. And the opposition sounds so relatable to our day and age in, in many ways because the church in America, we don't face persecution in the form of physical attacks, not usually. And neither do the exiles in this part here. The, the enemies don't attack with physical weapons. What do they do? They discourage the people and make them afraid. The Hebrew is literally that they weakened their hands. They bribed Persian officials against them, and they generally frustrated their purposes. And that, to me, is like the key verb right there. Frustrated. I often feel frustrated. I don't know how many of you feel frustrated sometimes. <laughs> I, I feel frustrated, especially thinking about the state of, of the church, not just our church, the American church more broadly, the culture we live in. Like, nobody puts a gun to our head. I've said it before, but the church seems to thrive when that stuff happens. The church grows in places where it's being persecuted. That's always been true. But to be frustrated... That's like a poison pill. Discouragement is deadly to the work of the kingdom. And so is fear. And the returned exiles were frustrated, we're told here, for decades. And that's very discouraging. Matthew Henry great commentator, points out the fact that in the original Hebrew, Ezra refers to the exiles in verse 1. He actually calls them the children of the captivity. And he says that Ezra is actually emphasizing their sense of smallness. I think he's on to something. It is a very small feeling to be this helpless to do what God has called you to do and to be stopped at every turn by nosy neighbors and corrupt bureaucrats said it before, but you know, spend any time on a phone with any government agency and you know what that's like. George and I actually were trying to navigate a government website just this week and like you could end up in tears. It is designed to frustrate and it's a helpless feeling and you have no more power than a child. And that's how God's people would have felt in Ezra 4. Small, helpless, frustrated, scared, discouraged. And you can almost imagine the, the things that are not covered here that, that Ezra doesn't actually record, but every single time there was a fine or a work stoppage or a, a holdup in the paperwork or approval for the latest thing. And why? All because they wouldn't play along. And they didn't let the unbelievers mess with the mission. I, I think the enemy has two 
favorite tactics for undermining the church, and they both show up here. I think his favorite tactic, if he can get it, is, is to infiltrate the church and lead her astray. That's what the adversaries are offering to do. Like, hey, look, we'll provide money and muscle, but they're also going to derail the mission. And it's not really that different from what Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness, right? Like, it's almost like, hey, let, let's go into business together, Jesus. We'll make a great team. Just bow down to me and I'll give you the world. We're going to do everything together. It's going to be great. Like, Satan loves to make a deal if he can infiltrate the ranks. But failing that, the enemy will do everything in his power to discourage and to frighten and to frustrate. He will put up roadblocks. He will create delays and drag the process out as long as he can. He will leave the church with a keen sense that the mission will never get done. Beloved, his goal is to break your spirit and make you feel like we're getting nowhere. His goal is to wear you down. That was certainly true in Ezra 4. And the path of least resistance would have been to just accept the help of the locals. They have the money, they have muscle, and they have influence. But the reason God's people said no is because they are resting on God's promises. He had promised to bring them back here and reestablish them. It's so fitting that our readings were all about these, these promises to Abraham. Abraham didn't live to see these promises. It took a long time before everything really developed into what it became. They didn't become a great nation while he was alive. But likewise, God's people here had been promised. He had promised to bring them back here and reestablish them. And, and some of these same old men that were weeping at the foundation here last week that we saw, like, they're not going to live to see this thing done. They were already elderly at that point, and now like 30, 40 years go by, right? They're not going to see the finished product at all. But God had promised to bring them here, and he had promised to reestablish them. And the kingdom will not be built on money or muscle or influence, but the promises of God, the promise of Jeremiah that was mentioned back in chapter 1. God promised to reestablish his people, and it is not our job to keep God's promises. If it were, from a human perspective, it's foolish for Zerubbabel and Jeshua to refuse the help. You should be looking at that as a gift from God. But they would rather wait on the Lord for decades than compromise on the mission. We should bear in mind that anything the world is eager to help you build is probably not part of God's program. Well, beloved, we are called to live by promises too. We've been talking about it. I mean, LVPC, we're in a time of transition. We're talking about moving and things, right? Hopefully see some growth. And I like to think that we're not going to compromise the gospel just to get some help. Like we're not going to adopt worldly methods and worldly messages just so we can qualify for like a grant or a government like subsidy, right? But you know what that means? That if the enemy can't infiltrate, he will frustrate. He will undermine. He may turn officials against us and he may discourage us. And he'll do it not only to the church broadly and as a unit, he will do it to every one of you because he likes to isolate people. 
And if you resist him, he will do everything he can to break you. But beloved, just as the, the people in Ezra 4, we also rest on promises. Who is building the church? Jesus. I got one answer here. That's good. That's a promise. Jesus says, I will build my church. Matthew 16. Is it your job to keep God's promises? No. He doesn't need your help. And that means we cannot and may not compromise the gospel. We cannot build with people who don't share the mission. That's like building with conflicting blueprints. It doesn't work. But if we won't compromise, then we must be prepared then for backlash. And we will face discouragement. And we may be frustrated. But we rest in the promise that Jesus is still building his church. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved, if Jesus died for us, he's not going to leave us in the mud. And it might take a lot longer than we like. But Jesus will build his church. And we might get discouraged along the way. But Jesus will build his church. Kings may turn against us, but Jesus will build his church. And the gospel will still be true, and the kingdom will advance, because God's promises will outlast any government program. And that is good news. So let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you so much, as always, for your word. Lord, we are thankful for the faith that is modeled by your people here in Ezra 4. It seems like a small thing to turn down help like that, but oh, the cost of it. Lord, we know and we believe that we have an enemy, and he is active. And he, at every turn, is looking for a chink in the armor, Lord, some way to infiltrate to send wolves in among the sheep, Lord. But failing that, Lord, we know that he will undermine and he will trip us up and he will try to discourage us, Lord. And sometimes he seems to be succeeding. Lord, teach us to rest in your promises. Teach us to believe in your Holy Spirit and to believe that Jesus is building his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Give us confidence, Lord, even as we have to wait and suffer and be frustrated. Give us strength to endure. Lord, this week and in the coming months and years, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all
Blessings flow.